Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, Pamela Cox talks about her book, Servants, Shop Girls and Sex Workers, A Hidden History, with moderator Sarah Ann Buckley, recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 6th of October 2018. Thank you very much, Tara. Uh, it's great to see so many people out. It's a beautiful sunny day, so uh, we're really appreciative that you've come and listened to us. Um, I have the pleasure of introducing Pamela Cox, who is a social historian and a sociologist in the University of Essex. And her research spans British history, contemporary social policy. And why we're here today is she made two BBC programs, one Servants and the other Shop Girls, which you may be aware of. Um, If you haven't seen them, I really encourage you to look at them. They're fabulous uh, programs. And I should say that she is herself descended from both. So that is of particular interest. And I also want to mention that if there is anyone in the audience who has personal stories at the end, we'd really be delighted uh, to hear them. So she's incredibly prolific. Um, She has published many books, but the two most recent are co-authored, so we have Shop Girls, and she also has uh, a book, Young Criminal Lives, Life Courses, and Life Chances. So I'm going to get us going with why did the BBC commission these two programmes? Well, first of all, thank you for chairing, thank you for coming. Um, Why did the BBC commission these programmes? Downton Abbey and Mr Selfridge, which were showing to large audiences on ITV. And so um, where I think the the general rule for BBC history commissioning is where ITV drama leads, BBC history programming may follow. Uh, So that was certainly part of the case. Um, Downton drawing in an audience of nine million every week. And I think the BBC thought, well, if one million of those watch a program about the real history of of, of servants. So that was a big part of it. It wasn't the only part, I think. um, in the meantime, a lot of historians had been doing some very interesting work on the history, of, particularly of domestic service, and it just seemed that the time was right. Um, and with Shop Girls, um, Mr Selfridge played a part, but uh, really th- th- this was a very new territory because I think we're at a very interesting moment in the history of shopping where shopping may be something that's disappearing and, and, and an activity that's becoming part of our history. So we're beginning now to think of it more in historical terms, and I think that's partly why they commissioned that. Also, the, uh, the, uh, the head of the History Channel at the time, her grandmother had worked in Harvey Nichols, okay. and she wanted okay. to tell that story. <laughs> Which kind of brings me on to, yes. I know you, you have family links yes. to both of these stories. So. Mm. Yes, I'm sure many people here do. We have to do a quick show of hands. Anyone descended from a, a servant or a shop worker? See, this is always very interesting, okay. And I bet those of you who may not know, I bet you are somewhere along the line. Um, it's a very interesting, t- uh, two, two very big fields of work that a lot of women, and, and men indeed, were involved in, but, but mostly women from the 19th century on, becomes a very, both in very feminized fields, and many of us have those links. So my, two of my great-grandmothers on my maternal side were, were servants. They left rural Essex and rural Suffolk in the late 19th century to move to London to work as maids of all work. So they were you know, the single servant in the middle class household. 
Um, one of them, very intriguing story, came back to Suffolk with two illegitimate sons, one of whom is my uh, grandfather, who I never met. Um, but So nobody knows the story of how those boys were born and how she brought them back. And I can't find it, even as a social historian. And their name is Smith, which is uh, <laughs> unfortunate. One day I might track it down. Yeah, and then, and then but the thing was that the, the, so the, the, the maternal great-grandmothers were servants, but their daughters were not. Their daughters very determinedly were not, did something different. Their mothers did not want them to follow that, that route. Um, and uh, so my, my grandmother immediately was, was a shop worker, and my, my okay. grandmother my other side as well. And I was a shop worker. Most of us have worked in shops at some point. My daughter's just got a job in WH Smith's. Uh, so you know, <laughs> it continues. And... So what did you want to do with the series? So we can, I can even yes. see the connections there between yes. domestic service and shop work, but what, what did you want to do yes. in both of them? Well, we might just have a little clip yeah. of this because we've got some, some images here. Um, so Downton and Mr. Selfridge, we haven't paid homage to that. That's partly why they were commissioned. But in, in Servants, we were telling the story of the, the real lives of servants. So there are over a million of them at the turn of the century in, in, in Britain. I know and many people from Ireland, many women from Ireland worked as servants both here and, and overseas as well. Um, and it's just a story that we hadn't really had on television. We'd had lots of drama, lots of films, Remains of the Day, Upstairs, Downstairs, you know, Duchess of Duke Street. We'd had lots of drama, but we hadn't had a social history of this very important field of work. So we just simply wanted to tell the story. And with service, we're really telling the story of its decline. You know, so 1920s, you can't imagine a world without servants. By 1950, they're pretty much gone in that form. Obviously, the work continues, the cooking, the cleaning, the washing, the shopping. That's another story as to who does that and how. But the service in that form goes. And so we wanted to tell that story in three episodes. And with, with shop workers, we wanted to tell, essentially, the story of the feminization of shop work. So in the early 19th century, of course, there are shops and, and so on, but they tend to be like this. They tend to be family businesses run by a man with male assistants, male apprentices, male shop-working apprentices. So what we were telling was the story of the move to this, which was the feminization of shop work mid-19th century on, where you see you know, the, the picture of shop work changes. You have the, you know, the, the guy at the back who's a, a head of a department. This is an early Marks and Spencer's store, sort of 1901, 1902, and an army of, of, of girls, and they are girls. They're 14, 15, 16-year-old girls. If anyone's been a teacher, you'll recognize these faces, these kind of, these girls standing there, um, uh, <laughs> and they're serving you. And, and, and so young women were working in this, in this field from, say, the age of 13, 14, leaving school, to the age of, sort of mid-20s when they marry, and then some of them come back part-time. Okay. So we were telling the story of the feminization yeah. and... Uh, and, and you might, yes. I love the opening to the book. You might just mention yes. our... Yes, oh, it, indeed. So the opening of the Shop Girls book, which I co-wrote with uh, the series producer Annabelle Hobley, um, and indeed the opening of the series, we start in Glasgow with a, a story of um, a, a headline in a newspaper, which is romantic freak of a girl of 16. Um, and a freak means a, a romantic idea, a romantic whim. So, but actually, she, she disguised herself as a boy in order to get work. 
and she was found out by a series of, of, of shop owners who kept herd, you know, herding her out of town. But that shows you what a kind of closed world shop work was for women at the start of, uh, of the, an early 19th century, and then how they broke into it and, um, and then sort of took it over. But they broke into it because employers could pay them a third or half or the half. wages of a boy. So yeah. um, that's what happened. Mm. Yeah. So we can kind of see, like, we can see the connections between the mm. servants and the shop girls. And then if yes. you read our blurb, the next connection is a bit yes. more controversial. It's about yes. the, the high-end sex work. Yes, well, let's just, let's just walk through, through that, that connection. So there are connections between servants and shop workers. So one is that there's a generational change. I think people who you know, mothers who worked as servants, their daughters became shop workers in, say, the early 20th century. So there's that transition. There's also the idea that, um, let's just flick that on, that, yeah. that, um, that a shop worker in the 19th century is essentially a servant. And they're referred to as servants of the counter. So these are people working in uh, these early uh, department stores in particular, or these sort of middle-ranking stores, haberdashers, uh, drapery, that kind of thing. And they share the same clothing, the black dress, the black uniform with the white um, you know, collar and cuffs. So they're meant to be recognisable as, as servants to, to their betters, really. Um, you'll notice from the picture that the customer there is sitting down and the, and the assistant is standing up. And that's very much the power relation of, uh, that, that's involved there. And some of these larger stores are very much run like mm. almost like country houses. They, they have this similar kind of architecture. They have the upstairs, downstairs effect. Um, so we think of, 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 of early shop girls as kind of high-end servants, if you like. And it's seen as more glamorous work. Now, one of the differences between them servants and shop workers, is that servants live in houses, generally. They generally live in, they generally live under the protection of an employer protection. Sometimes, as we know, that was not afforded to them. Um, sometimes that's an extremely abusive relationship. Anyway, they live under the protection of a household. Shop workers don't. And so here you've got these, you know, the girl from the country who comes and works in the big town, and where is she living? She's living often above the shop, so under the protection of the owner, or she's living in a hostel owned by the owner, or in lodgings, which is extremely dangerous, obviously, for the 19th century. So unlike, say, factory workers who tend to work locally and live locally, they're often migrants coming to town and then living in this, in this city. And they become this kind of iconic figure in the city, this, this young woman who's free to move. She's got her own wages. She's, she's not under the protection of a family or an employer. So she becomes quite a scandalous figure. We have a, a chapter in the book called Scandalous Shop Girls. People are obsessed with them. Magazine writers, newspaper writers, novelists, playwrights. There's a music, musical piece of musical theatre called The Shop Girl, which runs for for many years, um, and they become these objects of desire. So um, this is a, a, a piece from the 1840s, a, a London newspaper, a London cartoon, you know, ogling the shop girls. Because, you know, who is this girl in the, in the, in the, in the neat black dress? What is she disguising? What is, you know, what is she really selling? Who is she pretending to be? There's a lot of 
class jumping going on here. There's a lot of um, cl uh, class politics going on. They're often pretending to be, you know, from a sort of higher social class than they actually are, and often, um, you know, berated for it. But ogling the shop girl, the man in the top hat through the glass, you see this image again and again. Here's another one. This time he's behind her. Um, this is a, a picture by um, a, a Tissot of, of, a, of, a, of a Parisian shop girl, but you see this across Europe. Um, so she's quite an alluring and a kind of, she's like a new woman. You know the idea of the new woman in the 19th century? Um, and we often think of the new woman, I think, as rather a blue stocking. So woman on a bicycle or wearing, you know, trousers or going to university. Mm. But I think these working women were another kind of new woman and um, all the more sort of dangerous for it. Now, lots of people writing about this, I'm getting to that connection between the shop work yeah. and the sex work. Lots of people writing at the time would say, oh, well, shop girls, you know, there's a kind of innuendo around them. What are they really selling? Who are they really? Um, there's an innuendo to, to, to suggest that, that some of them are working as, as, as sex workers, as prostitutes. And I always thought, feminist historian, yeah. I always thought yeah. that this was simply a sexualization of women's work. You know, it's a kind of rumor around them and so on. It's a mistrust of them. And then we started digging a bit more and found there is, in fact, quite a connection between high-class shop work and high-end sex work. If I was to ask you, is anyone here descended from a sex worker? <laughs> I don't know that anyone would raise their hand because you probably wouldn't know. Mm. Some of us must be. You won't know it, uh, for necessarily from the census, from your family records. And I found that that was one of the most fascinating things to come out of the Shop Girl series when we did a, 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 a small piece about it. And um, let's just explore that now. Yeah, this clip. Uh, we have a clip now, I believe. Do we have a clip now? Yes. I think yes. Let me, let me just cue it up by, by saying, has anyone been to the Burlington Arcade in London? Uh, it's off Piccadilly. Okay. We have some people. Right. So the Burlington Arcade is apparently London's, Britain's first shopping mall, first covered shopping area, built in the 1820s um, by Lord Cavendish, who owned a lot of it, land in that area, and um, was, was set up by him, and it's a, a curious advert for industrious females mm. and, 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 sort of, and beautiful goods. So there was an idea that from the very beginning, the women who were recruited to work in the Burlington were not all that, that they seemed. Um, Henry Mayhew writes about it, other people write about it. Think of where the Burlington is, if you know that part of London. It's the West End, it's in Bachelorville. It's where all the bachelor apartments are, near the law departments, near the theatres, near the restaurants. It's, it's, it's West End high society, there's a lot of money there. And of course there's a, there's a high-end sex trade around there. It's just down the road from Parliament, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, and, and uh, there's lots of connections there. Um, so the big story I think we need to tell, let's show the Burlington first, yes. and then before I preempt it. So this is a clip from us filming in the Burlington Arcade. This is the Burlington Arcade in London. It's Britain's first shopping mall. Ever since it opened in 1819, it's been a high-class shopping area linking Piccadilly in the south to Mayfair in the north. From its beginnings to the present day, the arcade shops have been small and exquisite, offering high-end jewellery, fashion accessories, art and antiques to 
of the sort of clientele able to afford them. But from their earliest days, some of these shopfronts hid another kind of business. Upstairs, some shop girls were working as prostitutes. Good afternoon, Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Beautiful shop. The Burlington Arcade's known for selling luxury goods. Or as I like to call it, fancy goods. Yes, fancy goods. I think fancy goods, goods has a really nice yes. ring to it. I think it. that term should come back. Yeah, I do too. And there's the story, isn't there, that some of the shop assistants working in the arcade had slightly double lives, let's say, and that, you know, hmm. some things were sold in the shop downstairs and then upstairs, other things were for sale. Basically, sex was for sale upstairs. And you see, that's well, that's rather blunt, isn't it? I think, yeah. I think ladies is a nice, rather nice way of putting it. <laughs> They applied yeah. their words. <laughs> yes, yeah. Could we take a look upstairs? Yes, of course, great. Um, after you. Sure. Beautiful staircases, isn't it? Yes, they're rather nice shape, yeah. aren't they? I always think I ought to cover it in leather. Yes, I think you should. Yes, I know. It's always sort of something that's always crossed my mind as something to do. So would this have been uh, part of the shop as well? Been trading or the, up or here? Or a workshop. OK. Um, I think trading on the ground floor was probably yeah. the predominant area. Right. So you could be working downstairs on the shop floor, you could be up here um, making and finishing goods, or yeah. as I understand it, you could also be on the, even the, on the upper floors selling other services. It appears to have been mm. um, not a place of ill repute, but there were opportunities for those wishing to find and those wishing to apply. We were having or sharing a joke because I had mentioned to Pamela that Trevor was some some character, yes. um, which she said he, he was indeed. Yes, so. he, was. He, he basically wrote himself into the documentary. I tell you, yes, we, we, had, we were just doing publicity shots outside his shop, and he, oh, what are you doing? And he was, well, we're doing this thing, and because we really did want to find someone who would let us into their shop and allow us to film and allow us to talk about the sex trade, which, you know, is a big room ask, but he went for it, which is also why we had to be a little bit cagey about what we were saying. Sure. Yes, but, sure. Um, yes. but his eyebrows are going to be... Yes. They must have their own Twitter account. Exactly. He, yeah. Yes, he should get his own show, I think. Yeah, Trevor. Yeah. Well, we, had an, we did another interview with the, the, the Beatles who guard each end of the arcade, and they're still there now, uh, guys in the top hats and the chains. Um, and... Um, and they explain how it happens. So a gentleman will go into the arcade and he might go and buy a silk handkerchief uh, and then he might decide uh, you know, half an hour later that he wants to change it. So he'd come back in and he'd say, I want to change this. And they'd say, would you go upstairs, sir? And uh, you know, can change it upstairs. And, and then he would meet somebody upstairs and, and then pay for sex with the handkerchief, basically. So no money would change hands. And there'll be, there will be lots of um, hand signals, whistles, hand signals to know, you know, what was, what was going on where. So it was a very interesting thing that's hidden in plain sight. Mm. Um, and lots of other people write about it. Um, we began to think, well, we've, we can't just take Trevor's word for it here. You know, we're, his, we're serious historians. We have to do some more digging. So we did some more digging. Um, well, we, and, uh, you know, there's some more examples of it. Let me give you a couple of slides. So this is from the Morning Post, a London paper from 1859. A, net, a network of West London streets. I'll let you read that yourself. Um, so this is known at the time. If you look at this, we know which streets they are. 
When you look at the census for those streets, you won't see a trace of this. What you'll see is things like seven milliners living with a French chocolatier in a house. Or you'll see seven servants, six servants, living with a perfumier. And so it's, it's very interesting. And as historians, we find this very fascinating because we've not done this. This is new. This is new. There's a couple of, couple of people who've done theses on this, but this is, this is new stuff. And it takes the history of prostitution away from, say, the East End or poorer areas of a city, and it, and it, and it allows you to look at those who didn't want to get caught and who didn't get caught and who were protected by police and businesses and so on and, and their powerful clients. Mm. So it's a history of prostitution we've not really seen. Um, so I, I, that's another reason it's very exciting. Yeah, and I think a thesis mm. for any Irish history student yeah. in the audience. Yeah, um, yeah, because Irish city must have been mm. exactly the same. Where you've, got, where you've got money, shops, retail, bars, politics, you know, you always have that, uh, that mix. Do you have any more? Do you want to skip on to um, the slide? Oh, yeah, there was another yeah. one. Yes, yes, just, just one more, just to prove. I feel I've got to prove, <laughs> to prove that this is, this is, this is real. Um, this is a letter to a new, another newspaper by, to a prostitution campaigner. I'll just let you have a look mm. at that. You know, all our mm. young ladies have latch keys and we ask no questions. And, and this is why I think shop work was, was quite ca carefully policed by employers. So um, they, they didn't want to risk their, their employees having this reputation. Yeah. yeah. And mm. that is with the living in yes. situation. Yes. It's, yes. it's really interesting yes. that they're quite restricted, the servants that, or the shop girls yes. that do live in yes. with the curfew and That's there right. will not be a man. That's right. Darken the door of that. Yes. Unless no questions are asked. So there's, there's that as well. So it's, it's a history that just needs mm. a lot more delving, I think. You know, okay. There's a lot, more, a lot more to it. I might move us into yeah, the political side of this a yes. bit. Um, yes. And there is, I suppose, in both shop work and domestic service, uh, we'll see activism coming forth. Yes. But there is an Irish story there is there is yes so a number of things we could cover today and I, I wanted to talk about this this connection because partly because it's new historical work partly because we put it in the title and uh, um, and, it, and it is of interest and I would be really interested to know your thoughts on the kind of the ethics of this of of uncovering in a sense something that was hidden by women for generations and what are the ethics of uncovering that so it's a, a tricky one um, but another element to, to the to the history of service shop work um, in particular, is people often say, well, were they unionised? Did they fight for their rights? They're often quite downtrodden. You know, they all work long hours, 17-hour days. They all work, you know, uh, fairly low-paid mm. work. Why didn't they rise up? You know, why did they put up with this? And this is why I think labour historians and many social historians don't have a lot of time for shop workers and, and mm. servants. It's like, well, they didn't, they didn't, they don't fit the mould. Yeah. You know, they didn't realise their oppression and join a union and go on strike and overhaul, you know, the conditions yep. and so on. Except some of them did, some of them did. And we, we can start with um, um, the, the connection between suffrage and shop work, which brings us to this, this particular story. I thought you'd be interested in, in this story, which is uh, um, the story of what happens when Asquith came to Dublin in 1912. And he came, as you can see from the poster, to uh, uh, take part in a political... Rally, I mean, obviously, on, on, on questions around Ireland. But three um, suffragettes from England trailed him there, and one of them uh, worked at Selfridges, 
and she's called Gladys Evans, and she's actually quite well-to-do. She's the, son of, the, sorry, the daughter of a stockbroker, and uh, she works in Selfridges, which just goes to show you as well how middle-class girls could find work in high-end shops, so whereas they couldn't find much work elsewhere, you know, apart from teachers, nursing, and so on. Uh, so anyway, Gladys Evans comes to Dublin to track down Asquith. One of the party, the three of them, throw, throws an axe into his carriage as he's crossing one of the bridges, or hatchet, uh, which breaks the window of the coach, apparently, and then he uh, takes some detour. They then get to the theatre where, they, where, they, where he's going to meet, to speak, and um, Gladys apparently sets fire to a sort of burning torch and throws it from the balcony into the orchestra pit where it then sets light to some gas canister and there's some explosion. And uh, so they're known for having firebombed the Theatre Royal in Dublin on, so, uh, for the suffrage cause. Now, she, she get, they all get arrested and she, uh, they have a very heavy um, uh, sentence for, mm. relative to, 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 to the damage caused. And I think she's the first... Um, suffragette to be force-fed, and I think she's force-fed here in Ireland. So there she is, panic sentences. That's uh, there's Gladys here on the bottom. Um, but the, the women of Selfridges, meanwhile, rush to her aid, and they have a petition, free Gladys Evans. So, you know, she becomes this quite famous uh, character because of what happened partly here in Dublin. So I suppose that's a way of also introducing the fact that Many, many servants and shop workers were suffragettes, for example. They did go on marches. They're often shop workers' sections of the marches, mm. suffrage marches and so on. So, yes, they, and the they servants did. as well, the suffragette yes. maids. Yes, there were, there were also suffragette maids. We had a lovely story from Glasgow when we were filming there about um, a, a, one particular maid uh, who organised the other maids and then got blacklisted for her pains, you know, no one would employ her. Um, and then and she was posting explosive devices through letterboxes in her maid's uniform, so using the maid's uniform as kind of cover for political action. So, so there, they were, there were activists yeah. among them. Um, there's one very famous one who I want to talk about, yeah. if I may, um, who I think everyone needs to know her. Uh, she, she's, she, she's called Margaret Bonfield. Um, she, was, she became a leading Labour politician uh, in England, but she started life as a shop girl. So she left school, uh, left home when she was you know, 12, 13 from her home in Somerset. She moved to Brighton where she became an um, assistant in a shop. Mm. She, in her autobiography and writings, she wrote a lot, wrote, writes about the fact that everyone thought they were prostitutes and how they, you know, they would hammer on the doors of the hostel and how frightening it was and so on. And she moves to London, she becomes a labour activist. She starts a shop workers union. Again, she gets sacked from many, many places for agitating, basically, and she's giving out leaflets mm. and getting other workers to join. And she writes yes. about conditions as well, doesn't she? And she, she like wrote an undercover, undercover series of articles under the name Grace Dare. Um, and, uh, and she eventually becomes um, the first woman cabinet minister in Britain. So she becomes the Minister of Labour in Ramsay MacDonald's government. Not many people have heard of her, and I just mm. think, gosh, you know, yeah. we've heard of another Margaret who worked in shops and became a, a, a political leader. And I always think it's quite interesting to contrast the two Margarets, you know. Yeah. We might just talk about the other yeah. Margaret. Yeah, I, I, everyone seems to know who we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Uh, fascinating um, part of the series was that. We got to film in Margaret Thatcher's house in Grantham. And to our knowledge, no other film crew had been allowed 
upstairs there. So there we were in Margaret Thatcher's childhood bedroom. And uh, oh, it was kind of strange, uh, rather, rather creepy experience. And there she is, of course. Um, I was determined that we would shoehorn Margaret Thatcher into this story. Um, she did work in a shop. She was raised in a shop. She did unleash um, a new wave of consumer society. She, she um, was absolutely schooled by her father and mother with the idea that the customer was right and the customer must get what they want whenever they wanted it. And if someone knocked on the door of the shop, which is here, the Roberts shop, at 9 o'clock at night, at 10 o'clock at night, you would open the door and serve them. So the difference between the two Margarets is, is really stark. You know, there's Margaret, the worker, the shop worker, Margaret Bonfield, agitating for workers' rights. And here's Margaret Thatcher, then Roberts, the grocer's daughter, pushing for customers' rights. And you must, you live, you, she said, we lived by the customer and we died by the customer. She, write, she writes about that quite, quite a lot. Um, that's the house today. It's now, um, it's called Living Health. Not, uh, not Living Hell. It's called, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Living Hell. And it's, we couldn't quite work out what it did. Uh, it, was, it was like it had a massage part upstairs. Um, well, you know, aromatherapy. Well, I hope not. Reiki, you know, those kinds of things. Um, therapy, chiropractic. It was that, it was that kind of thing. Um, and I did, like, I did like this. Give the gift of relaxation. <laughs> gift vouchers available here. I said, she would love that at one level because you're selling uh, relaxation. But uh, you know, she wouldn't like the idea of relaxation yeah. as such, I don't think. But that's, that's the director, Jenny James, and the cameraman, Doug, filming in Margaret Thatcher's bedroom. And that's the window that... that so there's the, the, it's the, the top, the wind, little round windows at the top, those, those half-circle windows, that's her, that's her room. And she was in there from the age of about 9 to 18 before she left Oxford in, in 1943. So this, that's the view from her window. That's what she looked out on. Not the Asda lorry. It, it, it was quite funny that actually, you know, opposite <laughs> the, 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 the Robert's grocery shop, there's now a massive Asda. But the, the, the house opposite was this red brick uh, house, mm. double-fronted house. You can kind of see why she coveted that house, you know. Mm. When she moved to Dulwich and her retirement home, she bought that house. It's like this fantasy house. And why she wanted us all to own our own on houses, because she lived above the shop and they lived there and she wanted all of us to live there. So, yes, it's an interesting story, I think, the the. But she the is contrast. the most, as you said, she's the most famous shop girl yes. in Britain, properly. Yes. In this nation yes. of shopkeepers, she yes. is, you know, yet the two Margarets are so different. Yes. They, they couldn't have gone on to have done more different That's right. things, really. Yeah, and I think people often say, well, you know, she, she was from a small town, she was a small town mm. kind of businesswoman's daughter, and there was only one, and, that, and that's the root of her conservative politics. Well, Margaret Bonfield worked in similar establishments, but took a different route. So I just wanted to open up that history that, you know, it can go both ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important one. So mm. I'm going to just take maybe one more question yeah. and then we'll go to the floor. But yeah. um, I suppose in many ways, like you said, domestic service now, we can historicise it because at least in, in Britain and in Ireland, as you say, it is in the past. But yes. retail, we were talking about how there is a decline perhaps in on-the-ground retail, and how yes. you deal with that as a historian, I guess. Yes. Um, it, the, the, the high point, I think, of the, of the, the number of, of independent or separate retail businesses in Britain, it hit its high point in 1920, and it's been declining ever since. Mm. Um, 
and it's declining at a rate of knots, really. And although that said, shop workers are still the largest single group of private sector workers, although they're obviously fragmented. They sure. are the, the largest single group of, of workers. So mm. it's a really serious question that as retail declines, that group will be, be, be being mm. eroded. And the, the group that make up the majority of them now, they are, you know, who are they? They are school leavers um, who don't go into higher education. So mm. um, people from 16 to say 23, they, they occupy a large um, portion of that market. And, and part-time mothers, working mothers. And it's still very, very low paid uh, work. Mm. So there, there is a question of how we how we use that history to know, mm. push yeah. for better conditions for them. And I think we were always just also just talking about cultural change and how these mm. shop workers actually are at the forefront of that in some ways when we talk, yes. particularly in the 60s. And yes, yes. I mean, that's, that was another key, key point of it, that um, shop workers, I think, were, as you say, at the forefront of... of of cultural change, I mean Thatcher was in the, <laughs> for another kind of reason, but but in terms of fashion, in terms of um, retail styles, and um, yes, absolutely. I mean we did, we did a whole section on the boutiques of the of the 60s, where we had um, shop workers who became entrepreneurs uh, and set up their own businesses. So people like um, you know Mary Quant and uh, Barbara Hulanicki, Barbara Hulanicki who who um, ran Bieber in in London. Uh, had worked her way up through through, through the stores to become a designer to become um, a, you know a, a leading retailer. So they then and they I think the other thing they did there they changed the way that um, interaction happened in shops right? so, so that they they present themselves as the customer's friend and the customer's confidant and mm. uh, there's a form of kind of emotional labour that they they managed to hone very well mm. and it's a world away from the you know the gentleman behind the counter yeah. in the 19th century store. So the feminisation of shopping really, um, you know, I think it really allows retail to to expand and pushes new frontiers. Yeah, because I love this reference. Mm. For me, it's shocking. There was a time when women didn't actually like to shop because you were going yes. in and the, perhaps yes. the man serving you was being very officious. And, yes. you, you know, and then with these new generation of women, they actually understand what what is yes. wanted. Yes. So. And I think as soon as the male proprietors could see that women could sell often more than, uh, than their male assistants then. That, that's why they then brought mm. them in. But, but in grocery, women did not work in grocery until really the First World War. Yeah. So you can imagine when Sainsbury's are set up, they didn't have women in there. You know, you couldn't imagine that now, could you? And you have that beautiful yeah. clip of when you do have the women and they're cutting yeah. the cheese or the, yeah. you know, and... And it's because things like cheese, you know, fish, wine, meat, you know, these, are, these are male skills. Mm. Um, um, you know, you have to be, you know, it's, it's a trade with, 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 with its skills and so on, and that women can't be trusted to do it. In fact, when Sainsbury's took on women in the First World War, they had to take out newspaper adverts to say, there are women serving in our stores, but don't worry, you'll still get the same level of service. Sainsbury's. <laughs> So it's great. They can also cut the cheese. Yes, so. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to the, the audience if I can. Yes. So the one thing we have to do is, well, raise your hand, but mm. uh, just wait till you have the mic to speak would be great. <coughs> so, yeah, we have a, a gentleman here. 
have two short questions. Yeah. One was, I was surprised to hear you talk about the ethic of exposure, exposing uh, the nature of your, of your uh, book right. and what's in it. Yes. The other item is, uh, I am surprised you have been speaking about the shop girls. In my lifetime, I remember when shop girls had to pay a fee in order to work in shops. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, is that covered yes. in your... That's it, thank you. Yes. Um, the exp when you say you're surprised by the, my raising the exposure question, do you think just because we should do it as historians, that's what history is, or what do you mean? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> what I meant was that in view of all the cover-ups we've had for the last 50 years, that you might be doing a service. I wondered why you worried about the ethic. I think there's something about women who want to keep a secret, and should that secret be respected? Um, uh, and it's, 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 and also the, the terrain for writing history has, has changed. I mean, both Sarah and I did PhDs many years ago when we looked at records of, of, of young girls and children in institutions, and we were allowed access to that, and now we wouldn't be so easily allowed access to that. So there's, mm. um, I think with some good reason and mm. with others not. We so were it's talking more of a about question. this. Yeah, I think yeah. ethically we were talking about yeah. if you, you know, you have to anonymize everything. You have to mm. uh, just that we have an ethical, um, we have ethical concerns. I suppose that yeah. uh, to protect uh, these women. And but I, I do think it's so fascinating. Yeah. And it's yeah. just good to think about that and then move forward um, yes. in a in an ethical way. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you want to take yeah, the second? No, the second yeah. question. Yeah. Um, some people did have to pay to. <laughs> join in the sense that they maybe had to pay for their uniform and they had to pay in advance for their board and lodging because they were living upstairs, this living in system, the shop girls, yes. Uh, and if there were many, many rules that they had to keep, so Whiteley's, which was a big department store in, in London, had 140 rules. And if you broke a rule, you, you, would have a, you would forfeit your wages. So if you left meat on your plate or you left the gaslight on or you weren't in by nine, PM, you'd forfeit a penny, forfeit, but there'd be no money left by the end of the week. You know. Mr. Whiteley Mr. didn't Whiteley. really follow his own. No, word. Mr. Whiteley <laughs> was, was shot dead by the illegitimate son of, a, of a, his own illegitimate son by a shop worker. So, yeah, that's, uh, so much for that. <laughs> it's all in the book, by the way, which is. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, my, I'm, I'm really fascinated with this because I, I haven't really given it much thought. Uh, I dressed the windows in Arnott's for 38 years. Ah. So when I came into yes. Arnott's, I actually came into Boyer's first. So your point you just made there, where mm. I was the last one to have, uh, just before I arrived, um, you have to pay 60 pounds for your apprenticeship. And you had to go to uh, the Gresham Hotel and do your exam. And, and you did stay upstairs. Oh. And then uh, I can still remember uh, the uniform I had. And that's the last thing I want to say about that. And, uh, <laughs> but, oh, we uh, should have interviewed you. Yeah. But it was, Arnott's took over Boyers. And it, it's the most extraordinary thing because it's one of the oldest department stores in the world. So as a department store, it's been there since 1843, but it was there beforehand. 
but it had double basements and the old boardroom. I get a bit emotional, sorry. <laughs> but the old Nesbitt family, they were incredible. They did so much charity work for mm -hmm. the Rotunda Hospital, the Maternity Hospital. I mean, we're talking massive work and massive charity work. Um, but on the height of the troubles with Northern Ireland and the Republic, mm -hmm. it's just amazing how you can become accustomed to things at the height of the trouble. 10 o'clock was my coffee break. Five o'clock, we all came down. Didn't matter who you were, and you looked for incendiary devices in, um, in all the pockets and everything else Goodness. like that. Yes. I'm not saying about, I'm not getting political, I'm just yes. saying yes. you just got used to it. Yes. Um, and also, I'm, I'm the last woman to get the full pension. And the reason I mention that, that it was the greatest, not one of, the greatest pension that the world had ever seen because it had 300 million surplus. And for 27 years, I never paid into my own pension. So I am one of the luckiest women in the world. Uh, it's extraordinary. So yes. I really love my time there. And yes. just one other thing, I had, the, the time that I was there, I had two cars that came through the windows at me. That, that's it. <laughs> I think we, uh, we have a follow-up series right there. Yes, uh, I think so. Yeah, we do, we do. And, and that idea of, of, of shop... Uh, two things, really, that, that well-run shops really looked after their staff, and this was another reason that they didn't... that staff didn't flock to unions. So somewhere like Harrods, you know, there was a staff club, there was, a, you know, there was all sorts of social events, there was, there was uh, Marks and Spencers, uh, John Lewis, the partnership thing, Marks and Spencers really looked after staff in terms of training. Um, so... You know, you can see why women felt comfortable um, working working there. Yeah, but the incendiary story is fascinating. Do I have uh, here? Hi, yeah. I have it. Excuse me. Oh. <laughs> Too loud, probably. Um, just, I actually, in my generation, I was the shop girl, basically. Yes. And I don't know of anyone uh, going back in time who was a shop girl as such. But my um, great-grandparents were in service and um, living, you know, the big house and the sort of, they, the grandfather was the coachman and so mm. this was in the stable yard, you know, yes. the stable yard, which is, they're all the same anyway. Mm. And they literally worked around the clock. Yes. They, they didn't have any t time. Mm. You know, the master had to go into town at eight o'clock or something. He didn't come back till three in the morning. So yeah. grandfather had to sit and wait yeah. for him in the street, yeah. you know, until he was ready to come home. Yeah. And then the great-grandmother, she looked after the poultry for the big house, and um, also uh, she did the best linen mm. for the mistress, yes. you know, so this was yes. a kind of a special. Yes. They also, um, they educated their sons very well, mm. actually, these people mm. who, who owned the big house and that. And um, even the daughter was educated. Yes. which was something in those days, because we're talking, I suppose, 1818 to 1910, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of great to go back. I've gone back, you know, with the story and through other, my aunts and my mother and that kind of thing. So it was very interesting. To, but I'm looking forward to buying your book, actually. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> jolly good, jolly good. It's good, good. And it, well, it's very skilled work when you said about the, the linen. I mean, it's extremely skilled work. Yes. Margaret Bonfield, as a shop worker, was making... Uh, 
um, layerettes, I had to look that up, for, for babies, which is incredibly detailed lace work for christening robes. I mean, you know, and she's 14 years old. I mean, it's, it's very skilled, this work. So partly it's about recovering skill. I think we often think of this as not very skilled work. You know, we think about migrants today, this is not skilled work. It is skilled work, and caring of all kinds is, is skilled work, I think. So I must be carrying it on because I was in the curtain business. Oh. I was the sewing as well. Yes. Thank you very much. My uh, mother was a shop girl and um, my father used to come into the shop in Cork City to buy his woodbines and she tells me it was after a while love at first sight. And yes. as the previous yes. speaker said, um, yes. when she said that shop girls are really intense on their children getting a good education, I can mm. say that very much about mm. my mother who insisted that I went to university and I've ended up with a doctorate in chemistry. But the, mm. the question I want to ask you is, what impact did the First World War have in the reduction mm. in numbers of shop girls uh, after the war, bearing mm. in mind that so many uh, women worked in armaments and nutrition, mm. uh, munitions yes. in the First World War, yes. without which the, uh, Britain probably would have lost the war? Yes. Well. First of all, has the biggest impact on domestic service because it's the servants who don't go back from war work into service because they get a taste of something else and they don't go back and the servant shortage really kicks in in Britain after the First World War. Um, shop workers actually continue, you know, so people are still recruiting and, and that still becomes a very um, you know, uh, mainstream job for young women. Shop work, typing, administration, teaching, nursing, these are the things that, that, that women did um, before and after marriage. And we still don't really have a history of it, and that really still annoys me. You know, I kind yeah. of think, you know, history is a big terrain, it's mm. a big field. It's got to be big enough for the experiences of our mothers, grandmothers, and great grandmothers. And if it isn't, why isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, could I add to that? Is that that section of women who worked the governesses? Yes, quite. Yes, looking after the children and nannies. Yes, there are books to be written on that because of yes. where they came from and what happened when they left service. Yes, yes, indeed. Very good book by uh, Catherine Holden on nannies and governesses. Yeah, and I should You're say right. in the in domestic yeah. service in Ireland, yes. uh, Mona Hearn's book up yeah. to 1922 is is excellent. Yes. Well, I've just, I've just come back from Brazil, I'll just tell you quickly, and I was invited there because someone had... I keep leaning into this as if you can't <laughs> um, I was invited there because there are seven million servants in Brazil, and still today, and, and the houses in which I was staying, there were women working in the, in the houses, yeah. yeah, seven million. Yeah, so, and around the world, it's a big thing. Yeah. Uh, mentioned servants as well. My, my parents, who were both born in 1913, both still alive, they can remember every house in the road. They grew yeah. up in the same street. Yeah. Had servants yes. up to the outbreak of the Second World War, yeah. at which point they all moved to England to get, take jobs. Ah, interesting. Yes, yeah. yes. So that's right. That decline begins with the First World War, and by the Second World War, that's that. And after the Second World War, it's very tricky. I mean, I, I got into this because I worked on... I did a book called Bad Girls in Britain, which was about girls who were sent to institutions in Britain for being wayward, delinquent, defective, you know, all these names that they have. And they were all trained in these homes to be servants. And, and, that, and they helped to fill the gap, you know, in that, in that shortage. That was my entry into the topic. Just down the back and then up front. My turn. Um, yeah, I just got a question because um, I own a building out in Barbrigan that w was a living above the shop 
building. It's now a protected structure from the 1880s. But my question has always been, I was just counting, we have six very good-sized rooms above the shop. And people say to us, well, the family lived up there, but now listening to you, no, I'm workers. beginning, the penny's dropping, yeah. and I'm thinking, yeah. surely the family wouldn't have given themselves what would equivalently be a four-bedroom four yes. apartment, five-bedroom yes. apartment now, and yes. who else was living there, or am I being told the wrong thing? They may have lived above the shop, as the, th as the Roberts family did, Margaret mm -hmm. Thatcher's family, or it may well have been four or five staff, um, and if you check the census, okay. you can see who was living there. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Thank you. So, Hi. Um, Hi. I think my question might be a little far-fetching here. Um, in thinking about, like, I'm thinking, as I listened to you, I thought about, like, the question of supply and demand, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, the, the commercialization, the capitalism yes. that pushed these things to happen. Yes. Um, one, have you ever drawn a connection now with, uh, like, Margaret Outward book, Under Handmaid's Tale, with the work that um, you've been involved in. I know that it's a little bit far-fetching, but the way I'm thinking about it is uh, women living in a house uh, to be able to supply certain things that is sort of like a short um, um, demand or something. Uh, and my second question is, have you ever seen a connection between migrant workers um, and shop girls and, and, and the field of work that you've been yes. in? Let me take the second one first. Um, with migrants, yes, the, the, the story of, of service and shop work is a story of migration. It's internal migration within, within Britain uh, and from, from Ireland to, to Britain. And um, I would say mostly it's a story of the white, white working class and white agricultural class moving to cities. That's, that, that's it in the 19th century. Um, to take your question, and, and now, of course, with modern slavery, you're seeing... Um, people from further afield come, coming in and being, you know, trafficked into service positions. So this, is a, this history is not dead, you know, this history carries on, this exploitation continues. The Handmaid's Tale question, um, if you take that in its broadest sense, that, you know, the, 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 the overview of The Handmaid's Tale is that women are there to serve the needs of, uh, 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 of men. Well, in a sense, that is part of the service history, but of course, most of the people employing servants were mistresses um, for... Of a, of, a, of a household. So it's a power relation between women as much as it is between men and women, I would say. And in the Servant series, we looked at the, you know, looked at this from the mistress's point of view of the kind of, the, well, the guilt to the exploitation and the, and the kind of difficulty they had with the relationship. But it certainly is it because it's a hierarchical relationship. Um, you could certainly draw parallels, yes. I think, did you use, at one point, I, I just, when mm. I was watching the series, I took down, you said the handmaidens of Victorian mm. consumer culture. Yeah. Which is really, like, interesting yeah. that... Well, the shop, I think shop girls were in the sense that they were working these long hours. Yeah. Um, if you think about, you know, these, these you know, the Victorian economy being a commercial economy, mm. and the, the service sector was always one of the biggest sectors in Britain. It's not something that happens after the decline of manufacturing. The service sector was the biggest sector in 1900, and we forget that, I think. By service, I mean shops, uh, in, um, insurance, you know, offices, that kind of thing, yeah. legal services. Um, but they, because they worked such long hours for such low mm. pay, you know, they were, in a sense, the handmaids. Six days a week, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah and, or more sometimes, yeah. Just yeah. Down the back, yeah. 
Hello. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, my question is with regards to, um, I'm very familiar with the fact that nurses were not allowed to be married until, I think, around about the late 1960s. Mm. And it sounds as, and of course they lived in nursing yes. homes, yes. and it sounds from what I'm hearing that shop workers were living above the shops. So I wonder how that impacted married life mm. and... Um, were women then having to forfeit a wage to become married effectively? Effectively, yes. The, the, the assumption was that you, would, you, know, you wouldn't be married while you're living there. You, in fact, you couldn't be. Um, and you, when a young woman married, she left, left work. That's the, that's the general pattern that happened there but the so, so if people didn't marry they ended up living in some of these these living in places until their old age and they became their 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 sort of pension arrangement really so some of the oldest ones were in their 70s when they left yeah. so i think i would be a good chair yeah. and make this the last question will i i'm to finish yeah. that four no nope, keep going keep keep going keep going <laughs> hi i'm just yeah. going to relate back to the question about migrant um, mm. labor I worked as a shop girl in London yeah. way back in the 60s. And there was a kind which, of a hierarchy. Which store? Which store? Oh, well, a range. Okay, <laughs> okay. I ended up actually yeah. in Sainsbury's okay. cutting cheese. <laughs> once, they let, once they let you With in. a male boss <laughs> telling me how to do it. <laughs> but <clears throat> in the kind of Irish immigrant community, there was a hierarchy of shops you could go into, you know. Okay. And yes kind of the working class Irish girls would go into the, the grocery shops. Yes. Yes. And then there was a hierarchy, like if you got into Selfridges, you were really oh, yes. doing well. Yes. Um, so I can remember going down to Regent Street and into a shop there to buy my wedding dress. <laughs> and there was a, a woman from Dublin, she was from, but she was from Balls Bridge, you know, so she was very <laughs> middle class. So. The, the working class Irish girls were in the, the lower ranking yes. um, and we all knew that. You didn't dare go into um, those shops because yes. they, they just weren't open to you. Yes. Um, um, for things. But yeah, I do remember Sainsbury's in the old fashioned counters um, cutting cheese. <laughs> yes, I think you're quite right. That, that hierarchy was, was very marked yes, um, as to yeah. where people worked. So when I'm talking about you know, the high-end shop workers in the black dresses and, and, the, and, the, and the smart hair, you know, they weren't working in the corner shop, you know. They're, they're, they're a different kind of a person, I think, well, you know, perceived as a different kind of worker, yes. Do we have any more? I've been given five more minutes, yeah. so. <laughs> We've done very well then, because, uh, yeah. We've kept our time. We keep have, it. we have. I was just wondering, could you say something about temporary or part-time servants? I'm thinking here of mm. bachelors who'd have the woman who comes in yes. and does their laundry and cooks their dinner yes. and leaves it in the fr fridge in the 1920s, 1910s. Yes. What kind of workers were they? Were they all married women who then did extra work? or What kind Ma of relationships? Many of those, they're often called like charwomen or chars or the woman. That's exactly, the, woman the charwomen does, idea. The woman what does. Um, they would, would come in temporarily... Um, uh, partly to clean, partly to look, to look after, say, a single person. And, and they would often be mothers. So married women mothers who are trying to, or single mothers, you know, trying to fit in around, around children. So they are, they're often called the dailies, when the dailies came in. Yeah. 
And, and that's, a, that's a pattern that you see expanding much more after the 1920s, 30s. The people who had kept a servant then just had yeah, my lady who came in, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. So it's, it's a very, it's a differentiated market, yeah. And today, you know, people who have, have cleaners or, you know, that, that, that kind of work con continues. Yes. We met one woman, actually, in, who worked in um, Peter Jones in Sloan Square during the Second World War. And she worked all through the war there. And she, I remember saying, making um, lampshades out from parachutes and things. And she had children. And her husband was away in the war as a soldier. And I said, well, what happened to the children? She said, I can't really remember, she said. <laughs> she said, I think my six-year-old used to pick the four-year-old up and used to take him home, and, yeah. and they would just be at home on their own, these, you know, these kids, while the mother went out, out to work. So there's a whole hidden history there of, of working mothers around mm. shop work and charring and that kind of thing, and, and neighbours looking after kids. Neighbours so then, in case anyone yes, turned off yes, the cruelty yes, man or yes, anyone else. Yes. And one reason it's a hidden history is because all these records, such as they exist, are in private hands, mm. you know, the, in the private hands of the, per, the, the private person who employed them, or in the case of the shop, the, sh the business just kept a record of its employers yep. and its staff, and then those records go. So as historians, it's really difficult to uncover this mm. history. So if you find a cache of anything in your attic that looks anything remotely like this, then tell Let Sarah. <laughs> tell Sarah. Let me know. Yes. <laughs> Just a comment, mm. at least the shop girls had one advantage, yep. and that was that they did not have to uh, resign on marriage. True, they didn't have to resign on marriage, they might have to give up their, their, uh, prop, their, their living accommodation. Mm. Yes, they yes. might have to. Well, in fact, in, we, in, in some of them they did, so the, biggest, the bigger the store, the more formal it was. The smaller the stores, if they needed her, then she would carry on, but the bigger stores, um, you would leave on, you would leave on marriage. So, well, but it wasn't always, an official marriage bar. It it's was, not an official marriage bar. It it's just a kind of cultural marriage bar. Yeah. Okay. Someone said, oh, when 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 you got engaged or when you got married, you had your you know your party with your colleagues. This is a Woolworths woman in the mm. in the fifties, I think, and she said, well, you know, it was basically your wedding party, your uh, retirement party, and your leaving party all in one. Mm. Saved on cards, I guess. <laughs> well, I think if there's anyone... Oh, okay, last question. Yeah. If there's anyone from RT in the audience, <laughs> I think there's obviously enough material for an oh, Irish series totally here. Is. Um, so please contact the Women's yeah. History Association of Ireland. Yeah. We'd be happy to help. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, hi. Did you find any evidence of a coordinated uh, response between the employers to dissuade political or suffragette involvement? Um, not a coordinated response, um, but there were certainly individual responses, and their general response would be, like with the Margaret Bonford example, they find her leafleting, they just sack her, and they sack anyone who takes a leaflet. In the, in this is in the you know, 1890s, 19, 1910s. Um, they were sort of employers' associations, obviously, and, and you know, I think we refer to them as the shopocracy, you know, the kind of the shopkeepers' associations, but... Um, uh, I don't think they were, and I guess they, they were working together to keep kind of conditions as they were. Mm. So probably needs more work that one, but yes. I think it's yeah. quite fitting actually mm. to end on, on suffrage because there mm. is a fantastic performance in here in, in 10 minutes time, oh, yeah. which Tara yeah. um, will tell you about. But for me, just thanks to Pam for mm. all the work. Oh,
Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find all the information you need at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and we're also on Twitter at HistFest.